You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, An Anchor for the Soul. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields. We're glad you're here with us this morning. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. We have been studying the letter to the Hebrews for the past several weeks, and we've gotten really to the towards the end really into what is the heart and soul of the letter and it's a great section this morning where we're looking at some of the people what we call the heroes of the faith you know one of the things that's great about the letter to the Hebrews is that one of the things that makes this book one of the greatest books in the Bible is that what it does uniquely is it ties together the Old Testament and the New Testament and shows us how they both find their fulfillment in Jesus, that the whole Bible is about him. So we're currently studying this section, which is about these great heroes of the faith. It's sometimes called the Hall of Faith, so to say. And we're looking at people like Abraham and Moses. But as we look at them, we can't help but notice that they were really just ordinary people like you and me, but they put their faith in an extraordinary God, and God did great things in them and through them. And what that means for us is that if God could take them and make something great out of them, well, then what can he do with us? So let's go ahead and read our text today, and then we'll get into it and pray. The text comes from Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in chapter 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which from which figuratively speaking he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing instead to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who meets us exactly where we're at, but we thank you also that you're a God who doesn't leave us there. Lord, you desire to take us on and develop us and bring us forward. So Lord, we pray that today would even be a part of that as we study your word together, as we worship. Lord, that you would be doing a work inside of us and changing us and making us into those people you desire us to be. So Lord, we ask that you would do that process, that you would have your way in us. Lord, give us ears to hear your word and apply it to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the things that people we love as a culture, as a society, as a humanity, we seem to love stories of underdogs. We love stories of people who came from zero to hero, like Harlan David Sanders. Have you ever heard of this guy? Harlan David Sanders. He grew up in rural Indiana. He was the oldest of three children. When he was five years old, his father, who was a farm worker, came home early from work one day complaining that he thought he had the flu. He had flu-like symptoms, and a few hours later, he died. And after the death of his father, Harlan's mom had to go back to work, leaving the three small children at home. And a lot of times, Harlan was responsible for feeding his brothers and sisters and taking care of his younger siblings from a young age. When he was in seventh grade, his mom got remarried. But Harlan didn't get along with his mom's new husband. And so what he did is he dropped out of school and he ran away from home. He later would say that it wasn't just 
totally the mom's new husband that drove him to do it. But it was also the fact that in school he had to study algebra and he really hated algebra. So he said, well, I don't get along with my stepdad and I hate algebra. I guess I'll drop out of school and run away. He was able to survive by getting fake documents and he was able to get random jobs on farms as a farmhand and doing painting. And when he was 16 years old, he used those forged documents to join the military. He joined the army. But after less than six months in the army, he got kicked out. They let him go with an honorable discharge, but he got kicked out after about five and a half months in the army. He then spent his life bouncing around from one job to the next, never really building a career, so to say. He worked for the railroad for a time. Then he was a door-to-door insurance salesman. Then he tried and failed to start a manufacturing company. Then for years, he worked as a gas station attendant. And finally, he started a roadside restaurant, which eventually failed and closed down. He then went on to work in the motel business, and that didn't really work out either. That also didn't last. And finally, he was in his 50s by this point. His marriage fell apart. He lost his family, and he got a job as an assistant manager in a school cafeteria, and that's where he worked until his retirement when he went on Social Security. And his monthly Social Security check was $105 a month. As a retired person, Harlan decided that he would try his hand once again at the restaurant business, so he started selling fried chicken in what was basically a truck stop. And eventually that business failed too, but before it failed, he had an idea. And so he he thought that he had some pretty good recipes. Like if people would taste his food, they would really like it, but because of where he was located in a rural area, the market was really small. So he got this idea that if other people outside of his area could taste his food, they would probably love it. So one day he got in his car and he started driving and he knocked on the door of every restaurant he came across and he tried to sell them on this idea. Here was the idea. They would buy his recipes, he would sell them his recipes, and then he would get some royalties of whatever profits they made. So if they made money, he would get a percentage. Pretty good idea, right? Well, Harlan thought so, but apparently no one else thought so because he went west from his home in Kentucky and he slept in his car for months because he didn't have enough money to pay for motels. Everywhere he went, sleeping in his car, he got denied. In fact, he kept a log of all the places that he went. He went to a total of 1,009 different restaurants trying to sell them on this idea before somebody finally said yes. Finally, he rolled into Salt Lake City, Utah, and somebody in Salt Lake City said, all right, I'll give it a shot, and went ahead and bought his idea. His recipes actually turned out to be very popular, and eventually this grew into what is today a $6 billion business with franchises in countries all over the world. Of course, the company is called Kentucky Fried Chicken, and Harlan Sanders is that man who got kicked out of the army, but he was given later in life, as a retired person, he was given the honorary title by the governor of Kentucky, and he became known as Colonel Sanders. Now, we love those stories, don't we? We love these stories of people who have gone from rags to riches, from zero to hero, from nothing to everything. These people who are unlikely heroes. And here in chapter 11 of Hebrews, we have a list of some of the greatest people of faith who ever lived. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. But if you look closely, what you'll see is that they didn't start out as great people. And what that means is that God loves to do this. He loves these stories as well. He loves to see people go from zero to hero. He loves to come alongside somebody and put his arm around them and say, come with me. I want to make you into something great. And it means that God sees people. He sees you and me, not just for who we are, but he sees us 
for who we will become once he has gotten a hold of our lives. And so how did these people in this story that we read about, how did these people become the great people who they became? Because that's not how they started out. What was the process that they went through? The title of today's message is Unlikely Heroes. And there are two elements which the text shows us. Number one, the first thing we see is that there was actually a method in the madness. So there's a method in the madness. And secondly, we see the incredible results of faith in your life. So let's talk first about the method in the madness. Right before this chapter, so in chapter 10, right before we get into chapter 11, we read chapter 10. And there at the end of chapter 10, verse 38, the writer of Hebrews quotes from the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. And he quotes from Habakkuk this phrase, which is used several times in the Bible, that says, the righteous will live by faith. And the point of this phrase, as he uses it here, the righteous will live by faith, what he's saying is, what he's encouraging us and challenging us is to not only say with words that we have faith, but if we have faith, then to actually live it out. But then the question becomes, well, what does that even mean? What does it mean to live by faith? What does that look like? How do I know if I'm doing it or not doing it? What does it even mean? How do you do it? It's almost as if, though, the writer anticipated that question, and he says, I thought you were going to ask that question, and then he answers the question for us. And so starting in chapter 11, he begins to answer that question. What does it look like to live by faith? What does it look like to walk by faith? Starting in chapter 11, he gives us a list of people, and he says, look at these people's lives. This is what it looks like to live out your faith, to walk by faith. Follow these examples. The first thing we notice about these people is that they're all people about whom we would say, if we would look at their lives, we would have said, you know, you just don't seem like the type. You don't seem like the type who would become a role model for generations to come. You don't seem like the type who would be, you know, a big Bible guy and a big God person. Here are the people who are mentioned in this section. Let's go through. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then Joseph, then Moses' parents, and Moses himself, and the people of Israel, and Rahab. So that's eight groups of people in total. And the more you look into their lives, the deeper dive you take into who they were and what they were doing when God took a hold of them, it makes it all the more incredible to consider who they became and what God did through them. So let me give you a quick rundown of who they were and who they became, and then we'll talk about how that happened. Because as we're going to see, there was actually a method to this madness. It didn't just happen randomly. And they weren't just exceptional people who are made out of different stuff than we are. They were normal people made out of the same exact stuff that we are. And God took them by the hand and he led them through a process through which they became the people they became. And the exciting thing is that we have the same God who wants to do the same thing in our lives as well. So let's look just each of these people. Who were they when God took a hold of them? First of all, we have Abraham. The thing we know about Abraham is that he was a pagan. Not only was he a pagan, but he actually knew about God. You see, he knew about the true and living God. It wasn't that he didn't know. It's just that he didn't love God. He didn't worship God. Rather, he loved and worshipped other things instead. He lived for other things other than God. Then we have Isaac, right? Isaac's mom and dad, he was raised in a believing family. His mom and dad were believers, but he ends up becoming one of the most dysfunctional parents in the entire Bible. In fact, like in his dysfunctional family, there was no fun in their dysfunction. It was all dis and no fun at all. And additionally, here's the thing about Isaac. He knew exactly what God wanted him to do, and for years he resisted God and said, no, I won't do it. Not really quite the candidate for being a role model of faith, right? Then we have Jacob. He's the younger brother. So according to custom, the younger brother shouldn't have been the one to carry on the family legacy. And yet God chose Jacob 
over his older brother. But Jacob was a con man. He was a shady character. He was a crook. And on top of all that, he was a mama's boy. Then we see Joseph. Joseph was the teacher's pet. He was that person in school that you hated because he always did everything right, right? He was annoying. He's the perfect son. He's that kid who your parents always tell you, why can't you be more like him? And that was Joseph. And Joseph knew it. And the problem is Joseph flaunted it. He lacked humility. And as a result, he was loved by his bosses and he was hated by his peers. And we have Moses' parents. They're poor. They're slaves. They're oppressed. We have Moses himself, who's a failed leader. He tried to lead a rebellion, and nobody followed him. And you have the people of Israel. They're just chronically disobedient people, right? Like dysfunctional. Like if God says, go here, they go there. If God says, do this, they do that. Then you have Rahab, a prostitute. Now, the text even refers to her that way, by the way. I don't know if you noticed. Rahab, the prostitute, at there in um, verse 31. Rahab, the prostitute. Now, I, I wonder, why does it have to say that she's a prostitute? Like, why emphasize that? Like, are we going to get her confused with some other Rahab in the Bible? Guess what? I looked. There's no other Rahab in the Bible. So it's not like you could have gotten her confused with the other Rahab who's not a prostitute. So why point out the fact that she's a prostitute? Is it to shame her? Is it to degrade her by pointing out what she used to do and what she used to be involved with? No. Actually, just the opposite. You see, it was, and it still is today, a huge stigma to be a prostitute. You don't see a lot of people trying to associate themselves with prostitutes. And yet, here is God, and he says, I'll associate with her. I'll put her on the short list of great people of faith. People who I want to hold up as examples of this is what it looks like to have great faith. And yeah, you know what? She was a prostitute when she came to faith. Here's the thing about prostitution. Women who are involved in prostitution, they're usually not doing it because they really want to be doing it. See, that's the thing. A lot of times they're coerced into it. And most of the time, if they want to get out, they can't just get out of it. And that's why one of the organizations, by the way, that we partner with here at Whitefields is an organization called the Anonymous Ways Foundation, which helps to rescue women out of human trafficking. So the reason that Rahab, it's emphasized, it's pointed out to us, she was a prostitute, it's to bring our attention to the fact that this is the kind of God that we're talking about here, the kind of God who loves people, all kinds of people, people that other people might not want anything to do with, he embraces them, he identifies with them, he's a God who calls people out of darkness and into light, he's a God who liberates people and sets them free, and no matter where you are or what you've done or where you've been, God loves you and he wants to come into your life. He wants to bring healing and restoration. He wants to bring freedom and he wants to lead you in a new and living way and make your life into something great. All of these people, when you look at who they were, what you notice is that they were very unlikely heroes. They were people about who you would say, you know, you just don't seem like the type. The type to become a great role model or a person of faith. And so the question we have to ask is, how did they become those people that they became? How did they become great? And what we see in each of their stories is that it didn't happen randomly. It didn't happen by accident. It was absolutely a method. There was a method in the madness. So let's take a look at, at some of their stories and see if we might be able to decipher and identify what some of the features and characteristics of that method were. Let's start with Abraham kind of considered the greatest, the father of the faith, the greatest man of faith who lived, the man of faith. Here's how Abraham started out. He was a wealthy person. We know that he was wealthy because he had a lot of animals. In that day, they didn't have bank accounts. So if you wanted to have money, you stored it in things. And one of the things that you stored money in was animals. So if you had a lot of animals, that means you're rich. Abraham was a wealthy person, and he lived in a place called Ur of the Chaldees, which is now in southern Iraq. It's near where the Euphrates River meets the Persian Gulf. 
And archaeologists have done a lot of digging there, and what they say is that this city where Abraham was from was the most technologically advanced city in the world at its time. In fact, a lot of other cities didn't even catch up for thousands of years to where this city was at. And their big technological advancement was that 4,000 years ago, they had hot and cold running water piped into their houses because they had thermal energy and thermal water under the ground, and they would use that, and they piped it into the house. So, I mean, imagine 4,000 years ago, you had hot and cold running water in your house. That's where Abraham lived. He enjoyed a lot of comforts, a pretty nice life compared to most people at other parts of the world. Also, like many people in Abraham's society, we know that Abraham worshipped the local deities, the local gods. Now, in that society that had multiple gods, each of those gods represented something. So you would have a god that represented money and wealth and affluence. You would have a god that represented fertility. You'd have a god that represented security. You'd have a god that represented success. And you'd have one that represented sensual pleasure. You'd have a god that represented power. And what would people would do is, depending on what you wanted, you would go and you would make sacrifices to that particular God that represented the thing that you want in life. And that God would give you what you want because you made that sacrifice. So for example, if you wanted a baby, then you would go and make sacrifices to the God of fertility. If you wanted to have power, you would make sacrifices to the God of power and so on. But some of these sacrifices that were demanded by these gods were pretty extreme. For example, one of their main gods, the god of power and success, if you wanted to have what he could give you, if you wanted power and success, one of the sacrifices that would be made is that people would literally sacrifice their firstborn child. You know, that's where we get these, this kind of idea like, oh, I would give my firstborn to have that thing. People literally did that. And the Bible tells us that Abraham worshipped these gods. That was what he was involved in. He was a wealthy person. He lived a comfortable life, and he was a practicing pagan. He was worshiping things like money, power, fertility, and yet something was missing in his life. See, Abraham and Sarah wanted desperately to have a baby, but like many people today, for whatever reason, they couldn't have kids, and you can imagine that they must have gone because that's what people did. You must have gone to make sacrifices to the fertility God over and over and over and still nothing, and then one day, out of the blue, God shows up. The true and living God shows up and he speaks to Abraham. Now, here's the thing you should know about this, that Abraham wasn't totally unfamiliar with this God. He knew who this God was. You see, the book of Genesis tells us a list of Abraham's ancestors. And if you follow that list of his ancestors, what you'll find is that only a few generations back, people worshipped this God, the true and living God. They didn't worship multiple gods, but they worshiped the one God. And so Abraham would have known that. He would have heard about this God, the God of his forefathers. You see, here's what's interesting when you talk about, you might call it cultural anthropology or human anthropology. A lot of what people think nowadays, right, the common myth is that people believe that, you know, people started out, we just started out living, on, living in caves and drawing on walls and then we kind of decided that we would worship certain gods, and so we made up all these different gods, and we worshiped a lot of different gods. And then over time, we became more sophisticated, and then eventually we kind of boiled it all down to monotheism. And monotheism is kind of a, you know, sophisticated type of developed kind of religion. What the Bible tells us, it gives us a very different view of human anthropology. The Bible says, no, you didn't, we didn't start living out in caves. Actually, we started living in cities. People actually left cities and moved into caves. And it says that we didn't start out worshiping many gods and making up all kinds of gods. No, the Bible says that in the beginning, people knew God. They knew who God was. And it wasn't that people boiled it down and developed monotheism, but just the opposite. 
People started out knowing God, but they didn't like the kind of God he was, and so they rejected him, and they made up gods that were more of their own liking. And, and specifically, those kind of gods that they made up, as you can see with Abraham, they were gods who they could manipulate. See, if you just make the right sacrifice, if you do the right things, then those gods will give you the things that you want. And you can kind of pick and choose what you want in life, and you just go and make the sacrifice, like, you know, putting the coin in the machine and pushing the button, and then it gives you whatever you want. Except when it doesn't, which was the case with Abraham and Sarah. The one thing they wanted in life, they've got this comfortable life, but there's one thing that's missing. They have everything this world can offer, but the one thing they want is a child of their own. And that's the one thing they can't seem to get, no matter how many sacrifices they make, no matter what they do. And so here comes this God, the God of Abraham's forefathers. And God says to Abraham, Abe, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take my hand and I want you to follow me and we're going to go on a journey. You and me, we're going to go on a trip. I'm going to give you a son and that from that son is going to come a nation and from that nation will come salvation for the entire world. You see, what God called Abraham to do was what God calls us to do as well. You see, just like Abraham, God is calling us to forsake the counterfeit gods that we have been looking to and trusting in and instead to look to him and put our trust in him and take his hand and walk with him. You know, I think a lot of us are a lot like Abraham, really. See, we know about God. It's not that we don't know about him. It's just that we love other things. We worship other things practically with our lives. We worship recreation and security, even family, recognition, success. See, God is calling us to make him our primary love, our primary commitment above all else, the one thing that we live for and the one thing that we worship above everything else. And so here's Abraham and Sarah. And they say, okay, we'll do it. They leave their nice house with the hot and cold running water and they decide to follow God out into the desert and live in tents. And God gives them a son and they're elated, they're excited and they name him Isaac, which means laughter because God has put joy in their hearts and has filled their mouths with laughter. He's brought a smile to their faces. And so they raise up this little boy, just so much joy. And he grows up and now he's grown. And then something happened that didn't make any sense at all. God told Abraham to take his son Isaac and to offer him as a sacrifice on an altar. It's kind of weird, right? I mean, by this time, Isaac has already grown up. He's big. He's, he's an adult. And the instructions God gives him are strangely specific, very strangely specific. Here's what God says in Genesis chapter 22. He says, Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, and I want you to sacrifice him as a sacrifice to me. He says, I want you to take him to this mountain called Moriah. It's a three-day walk from where they live. And he says, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son, whom you love. Now, what's with those words? What's with emphasizing that? I mean, it's bad enough to say, I want you to sacrifice your son. Why do you got to twist the knife in his heart and say, your only son, you know, the one you love. Why twist the knife? Abraham must have been thinking, God, I thought you were different. I mean, I, mean, I, I want to do what you say, but I thought you were different, right? Because all those other gods I used to worship, they asked for stuff like this. But I thought you were different. They asked for human sacrifice. They asked for child sacrifice. But you, God, I thought you were different. I thought you weren't like that. And now here you are asking me to go and sacrifice my son. This is weird. I don't understand. This doesn't make any sense. This goes against everything that I think that should happen. What about your promise, God? What about your promise to me to make my son into a great nation? If I kill him, he can't become a great nation. And yet, in spite of the fact that Abraham didn't understand why, 
It says in Genesis 22, verse 3, that Abraham arose and he went. He set out on the journey to Mount Moriah. They traveled, it says, for three days by foot. And they came to this mountain called Moriah. And Abraham told the, the crew that had come with them, he said, I want you guys to hang back here. And, and Isaac and I, we're going to go off and we're going to do something. And then we're going to come back. That's interesting. They said we're going to come back. Like, we are going to come back. He didn't say, I'm going to come back. And so Abraham and Isaac, they go walking up this hill. Imagine the picture in your mind. It says that Isaac, in the text it tells us, Isaac was carrying the wood for the sacrifice upon his back as he walks up this mountain. And Isaac says to his father, Dad, so wait a second, we've got the wood, but I don't know if you noticed, but we don't have a lamb to sacrifice on the altar. And Abraham says, don't worry about it, son. God's going to provide himself a lamb. And they get to the top of the hill and they build this altar out of rocks. That's how they would have built it. They would have taken all the rocks they could find. They would have stacked them on top of each other and they would have made an altar. And this whole time you can imagine Abraham, he's waiting, he's hoping for God to do something, for God to intervene, for God to say, no, 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 I don't really mean it. You don't have to do it. You don't have to go through with this terrible act. But there's nothing. Nothing happens. God doesn't say anything. And so Abraham finally has to say that thing that he's been dreading saying, hoping that he'd never have to. He says, Son, I'm going to need you to do something for me. I'm going to ask you to climb up on this altar here. You see, son, here's the thing. God told me to bring you to this place and to sacrifice you. Now, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand why. It doesn't make any sense to me. I don't, I don't want to do this, but I'm obeying God. That's what I have to do. So what does Isaac do? Well, he kicked his dad in the shin, punched him in the nose, and he ran away down the mountain, and his dad was super old, so he couldn't catch up. No, that's not what happened at all. Isaac, in an unbelievable move, he says, okay, dad. And he climbs up on the altar. And so Moses spreads the firewood around him. You can imagine every single move just twisting the knife in his heart, killing him to do this. And he gets the knife, and he's just waiting. God, when are you going to stop me? When are you going to put an end to this? And he gets the knife, and he's going to plunge it into the heart of his very own son. And he raised the knife above his head, and you can imagine the muscles shaking, preparing to plunge that knife into his own son's heart. And finally, God speaks, and God says, no, stop. And he says, look over there. There's a ram caught in the thicket. And so Isaac gets off the altar and they sacrifice the ram instead. Such a bizarre story, right? Like super weird. Like why, why go through all of that? If in the end, the whole point was just to sacrifice a ram on the altar. Why, why, couldn't, couldn't you stay home and sacrifice a ram on the altar? Why go through all this drama? Well, one thing the text tells us is that it was a test. That's what the text says, that it was a test that God was testing Abraham. Was Abraham willing to follow and trust God even if God didn't tell him how it was going to work out? Was Abraham willing to give up that which was most precious to him in the world if God asked him to give it up? And the answer, it turned out, was yes. But let me ask you this. Didn't God already know that? I mean, didn't he already, couldn't he already see Abraham's heart? Like, couldn't he already tell that that's where Abraham was at? So, so really, in effect... This test wasn't actually done for God's sake. It wasn't to teach God something that he didn't know. This test was actually done for Abraham's sake. It was kind of to show Abraham how far he had come and who he had become over these long years of walking with God. See, here's the thing about you and me. You will never really know who you really are 
until you're put to the test. You will never know who you really are until you're tested. See, by this point in Abraham's life, he's been walking with God for some years, and he has become a great man of faith, and this proved it. But how did that happen? How did he go from pagan dude worshiping money and success and power to becoming this man who trusts God so much that he's willing to risk everything? The way it happened was through a process that was not always easy and it wasn't always comfortable. It took a lot of stretching, a lot of waiting, a lot of things that Abraham didn't necessarily enjoy. Sometimes they worried because they didn't know how things were going to work out. Sometimes it wasn't fun. A lot of times it wasn't fun, but sometimes Abraham got, actually failed at being a person of faith. Sometimes he stumbled, but God never gave up on him. And through this process, he learned that God was faithful, that God loved him, and therefore he could absolutely trust him. You see, with all these people in this chapter, the reason they had such great confidence in God is either because they learned it firsthand through their own experiences, or they learned it secondhand by watching other people. But either way, they had this great body of proof that they could draw on, which had been built over time, that God was trustworthy. You see, Isaac, for example, he saw God's faithfulness in his parents. And so at the end of his life, after many years of resisting God, he finally gave in and he said, okay, God, if this is what you want, then I'm on board. Jacob, even though he was a shady character, God never gave up on him. And at one point it says that God wrestled with him to the point where Jacob was broken. And that point of brokenness was a turning point in Jacob's life where he learned dependence upon God and he learned that God was 100% committed to him and he could totally trust God in all things. Joseph, we see that he experienced God's faithfulness firsthand. He was betrayed, he was lied about, he was wrongfully imprisoned. But in the end, Joseph saw how God used all of those bad things and worked them together for good. All the things that were meant for evil, God took all those things and used them for good. And through all of that, Joseph became convinced that God is good, that God is faithful, and that God keeps his promises. You see, Rahab, her faith was actually built by watching God's work in other people's lives. In her story, in Joshua chapter 2, she says to the Israelites, I know about your God. I've seen what your God does in other people's lives, and so I'm going to believe, I'm going to trust. And that's an important point for us to consider. You see, because it means that maybe... The things that happen in your life aren't only for your sake. It's not always only to build your faith or do something in you. Sometimes it's for that other person who's got their eye on you, who's watching your life, who's close to you. Maybe God is using you in the circumstance of your life to build their faith. You see, the way that God builds faith, the way that God makes us into the people he's making us to be is through a process. But the results are priceless. See, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter tells the people he's writing to, he says, these trials you're facing... Here's what they're doing. Here's the effect of those trials. They're testing the genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold. There's a couple of weeks ago, I was up in Breckenridge, and um, they have a museum right downtown in the main square there, which has a gold mining museum, which talks about how they mine gold and how they process gold. And one of the ways that they process gold and refine gold is by using heat and by using fire. Because see, when you mine this gold out of a mountain or out of a stream, it's oftentimes mixed with a lot of other stuff, like dirt and other minerals. And so how do you separate that gold? How do you get the stuff out? How do you separate the, the gold from the junk? And one of the things that they use is heat. And so they'll heat it up super hot and it burns some of the stuff away and the gold separates from the other minerals and you can throw away the stuff that you don't need and keep the precious gold. And so in the end, you end up with pure gold. And Peter there in 1 Peter 1, he says, that's a picture 
of what God does in your life, in my life. He's refining us. He's taking the raw material that's full of dirt and, and all that crud that we don't need, and he's getting rid of it. But sometimes that process includes a lot of fire. Sometimes he turns up the heat on you. Sometimes he brings you into things that might be uncomfortable and might even hurt for a moment. But the reason he does it is because he's working in your life to refine you and get rid of that same old junk that needs to be gotten rid of. In his letter, James, in the book of James, letter of James, he says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, when it has its full effect, it's that it leaves you perfect and complete and lacking nothing. In other words, God would say, trust the process. Trust the process. Just look at these people in this story. God wants to take you from where you are today, and he wants to build your faith. He wants to make you into something glorious and great and beautiful. So trust the process and keep your eyes fixed on him. And secondly, we'll talk here at the end about the incredible results of faith in your life. We see three characteristics as we look through these stories. Number one, faith results in bravery. If you have faith, the faith results in bravery. Verses 17 through 19, we read about Abraham. And we see that he wasn't even afraid to give up his own son because he had faith that God's promise and God's power, God would keep his promise and God was powerful. So in verse 19, it says, Abraham considered that God was even able to raise his son from the dead. Abraham believed so strongly in God's promise that he said, look, if Isaac dies, then I think God could even raise him up from the dead. Now let me ask you, why would he assume that? Why would he think that? No one else, as far as we know, had ever been raised from the dead before. But see, Abraham's had so much faith in God's faithfulness, God's promise, and God's plan, and God's power, that it made him fearless. That same characteristic is seen in verse 23. It says that Moses' parents didn't fear the edict of the king. The king had said to round up all the Hebrew baby boys and throw them in the river and drown them. But they disobeyed the king at risk to their own lives because they had confidence in God. And that confidence in God made them fearless. In verse 27, it says that Moses was not afraid of Pharaoh. He left Egypt and he didn't fear. He trusted in a God who was bigger than any army. Let me ask you this. Do you struggle with fear? Do you struggle with worry? Ask yourself this. What would it look like? How would your life be different if you had complete confidence that God was truly in control and truly working all things together for your good and for his glory. Secondly, faith results in resiliency. We see that in verses 24 and 25. It says that Moses, he gave up his position as a prince of Egypt and chose instead to be mistreated with the people of God. You see, what kept him able to do that, what kept him going through all of that difficulty was that he had faith in God and that faith made him resilient. It says in verse 26 that he was looking forward to the reward What's the reward of our faith? It's a new status before God, which results in a new destiny for our futures. See, here's the thing. Faith is inextricably, inseparably linked to hope. Faith and hope are linked together. As human beings, we're hope-shaped creatures. Hope is like fuel in the tank. If you have it, it'll keep you going even through the most difficult things. When you have hope, it makes you resilient. I was reading a story recently about two men who were captured and thrown into a dungeon. And just before they were put in prison, the one man discovered that his wife and child had died. And the other man was told that his wife and child were alive and were waiting for him. And in the first couple of years of their imprisonment, the first man wasted away and he curled up and eventually died within a couple of years. But the other man stayed strong and he walked out of that prison 10 years later. See, both of those men experienced the exact same circumstances in that prison, but their future 
absolutely determined the way that they lived in the present. That was the only difference between them. They had different futures, and the way that they saw their future determined different ways that they lived in the present. If you have faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus did for you, you can have a hope that will make you absolutely resilient. And finally, faith results in actions. That's what we see above everything in all of these stories. With each of these people, their faith led to actions. It wasn't just theoretical. It wasn't just ideas and nice things that they thought and believed. But it was practical. You see, if you really believe something, it will affect the way that you live. Faith always translates into practical actions. And so the question is, how do you get that kind of faith? The kind of faith that makes you brave and fearless in the face of anything that life brings your way, even death. How do you get that faith that makes you resilient, that you can go through anything that life might bring your way, even through great difficulty? How do you get that kind of faith that isn't just nice theory and thoughts, but is actually real and practical in your life? Well, let me take you back to that hill where Abraham built that altar to sacrifice Isaac. You remember what it was called? It was called Mount Moriah. Now, why did Abraham have to travel three days to go to this specific mountain? I mean, if it was just coming down to sacrificing a lamb, couldn't he have done that at home? Well, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, tells us that Mount Moriah was the place, the location where the city of Jerusalem was later built. That's what makes Jerusalem a unique city. It's built on top of a mountain. That's why you always travel up to Jerusalem. That same mountain, it says, same mountain, Mount Moriah, that same mountain where Abraham had built an altar to sacrifice his son, his only son, whom he loved. And it was that same mountain where later the temple would be built in the days of Solomon where sacrifices were made to atone for the sins of the people. And it was on that mountain, Mount Moriah, Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified on a part of that mountain where there was a cliff called Golgotha, the place of the skull, same mountain. And when God took his son, his only son, remember just as Isaac carried the wood for his own sacrifice up the hill, Jesus then carried his own wooden cross up that same exact hill. And whereas for Isaac, though, a ram was substituted and his life was spared, Jesus was the lamb. He was the sacrifice. He was the substitute for you and for me. And the knife of death was plunged into his very heart so that you and I could be saved. He was the ultimate sacrifice. The reason why God asked Abraham to go through all that drama was to prefigure what he would do when he would take his son his only son, whom he loved, and sacrificed him on the same mountain for us. How can you know that God loves you? How can you be sure that you can really trust him? The Bible puts it this way in Romans chapter 8, verse 38. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he also not, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Look to the cross. That's where you see the proof that God loves you, that he is for you. And if he loves you that much, if he loves you that much that he would give up his son, his only son, whom he loves for you, then don't you think you can trust him? If he could take these people, like these people we see here, and he could make something great out of them, well then what about you? Just imagine what he can do with you. So let me ask you this. Will you put your faith in him today? Will you trust in him today? Will you make him your Lord Will you trust the process, knowing how much he loves you and knowing that he is absolutely committed to you? And I encourage you today as we close, put your faith in him. Embrace the gospel. Take his hand and walk with him and let him have his way and do his work in your life. Amen? 
Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your great love that you've shown us on the cross in this greatest way, Lord, that you took your son up that mountain, your only son whom you loved, and you let the knife of death plunge into his heart so that we could be saved. Lord, as we look to that, we can't help but recognize that this is purely by grace. It's your work that you have done for us because you loved us. So today, Lord, we receive that. We believe it. We accept it. We embrace it. We say, Lord, not only is that true, but it's true for me. And Lord, we put ourselves in your hands. Lord, like a clay in the hands of a potter, Lord, we ask that you would form our lives and make us into the people you want us to be. We ask that you'd cleanse us like gold. And Lord, that we would help us to trust the process. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 